Well, it's hard to believe that he actually remembers us after all this time. It's been a while since we've had a weekly update and a conversation on the air. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the uh, weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's good to be back with you. I, I, I do remember the name, but can't remember the face. <laughs> Maybe we'll get together <laughs> one day. And we'll be able to catch up a bit. Uh, well, the uh, Yuntif season was beautiful, thank God, mostly. Uh, unfortunately, it was marred by um, headlines of criminal and, let's say, otherwise inappropriate behavior from a community leader in one of the highest-profile congregations in the entire world, Malcolm. Uh, describe how difficult it is, if it is difficult, for someone like yourself to represent our people when these types of episodes continue to work their way into the headlines. Well, it's uh, you know it doesn't affect us directly in the sense that uh, uh, people that, that it affects the work we do that I do, but the uh, the impact on the community as a whole I think is very evident. And uh, you know while it happens in every community and things occur no matter what the group it is. Jews are particularly sensitive, as we should be to it, and uh, I think it just reminds us all to be on guard and the need for all of us to be vigilant uh, and hope that the, the, those who are involved will be will find comfort and, and uh, get past this. A rabbi, of uh, uh, someone who's really outspoken, especially in social media, said to me this week that um, as insiders, it's it, 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 we have a a much more narrow view of the whole thing and suspect that people are looking at the entire community, outsiders, those who aren't religious, those who are not within the Jewish community, as, you know, as, you know, as really bad people, so to speak, you know, looking at all of us the way they would look at criminal behavior. And he said that he, he, he thinks that if you, if you look at it more from an outsider's point of view, uh, based on the conversations he's had with outsiders, uh, they appreciate when people like us you know, condemn these type of acts and and make sure to reiterate and remind the world that generally, you know, our community, thank God, does not behave like this. You agree with that? Yeah, I think that everybody, you know, every public leader, anybody who comes under criticism, thinks that the whole world is focused on them and you know tends to turn inward and look at themselves and, and exaggerate the impact. Mm. Uh, you know, as I said, the. the uh, other religious groups have had serious problems, and, the, and uh, the question is how you address it. And if you tend, if you lie about it, it tends to compound the problem, as opposed to just addressing it and openly and frankly, and seeing that we try to prevent it and to, again, try to bring comfort to those who are affected. Right, no question. Well, the terror attack in Yerushalayim this week took the life of uh, three-month-old Chayezisel Braun. And um, there are a lot of different angles we have to discuss, and I, I even want to get into the whole you know, the fact that there was a terror attack in Canada the same day, and maybe make some comparisons. But the the first thing that really outraged a lot of listeners here, and I was I was glad to see uh, people really get hot headed about this, is that she was an American citizen, and we're talking about you know a, a family that you know partly comes from America, the rest of the family with great ties to this country. You would think, and again we can compare it to other episodes, you would think there would have been a greater outrage from from Washington and from leaders in this country. Are the listeners right? I think by and large, yes. <clears throat> when uh, the New York Times, I don't even know if it mentioned it, but if it did, it was just in passing. We had other 
there was the the uh, attacks that took place here that that you know could have this certainly could have been part of that uh, report. And when a, a, a Palestinian who was throwing firebombs uh, or Molotov cocktails gets shot, do you see the headlines without the context about what happened? It was even in in regard to this incident where somebody sent me a headline where it says Israeli troops shoot. Arab man, and then it says, yeah, he was engaged in a terrorist attack and just <laughs> killed a baby. Yeah, it was Israeli police shoot man in Jerusalem. Right. That, that, that's the way they report the story. And, and uh, I mean, I think it is an untold story overall. And that is the ongoing violence in Jerusalem. There isn't a single day when there aren't incidents, and as you know, we've been very involved in the Mount of Olives, the Harazetim, the whole issue of the desecration of the cemetery, um, together with the International Committee. I have seen firsthand the destruction. We've seen the, the uh, over Rosh Hashanah, 40 Matsevot, um, the uh, tombstones desecrated, and the graves desecrated. And then again on uh, on Sukkot or Yom Kippur, there was more, and it's been ongoing. There's been ongoing violence, the stoning of cars, the attacks on the light railroad almost every day. And there really has to be a crackdown, and we've seen now the something we pushed for a long time, and that is introduction of legislation or proposed introduction of legislation that would hold the parents accountable for the acts of minors who engage in this kind of destruction and, and terror. How old was this terrorist? Which one? The, this was not a minor this week, right? No, this, no, this one right. was not a minor. He was right. not a minor. He was driving the car. Right, but this rock-throwing by minors and things like that, you mean? Well, it's the minors who, who engage in some of these activities, but it's right. because... Then it's instigated by adults, but they send the kids because they know that they'll get nothing more than a slap on the wrist. Right. So if the parents know that there's going to be a price to pay, second, you know, there's new units being created to deal with the violence in Jerusalem and the, by the police. I think that the reaction has been lax. We've had many, many discussions. They have taken steps like putting cameras on the Mount of Olives, but those cameras were then destroyed and, and burnt. And, and if there isn't a heavy consequence, if there isn't a price, uh, they're, they're trying to create a reality that East Jerusalem is not safe for Jews, and that um, and the de facto division of the city, the the ongoing violence then will spread to other areas. And people talk about intifada. It's not an intifada, and I, I think that that's not imminent. But if you let violence go unchecked, then you invite it to, to spread. And the, the dismissal of this as being, the, you know, the acts of kids is just not true. This is an organized effort. This is sustained over a long period of time and has to be addressed with real determination. I mean, because of so many different angles to this story, meaning the one in Jerusalem this week, we understand what you're saying in terms of, you know, every day being filled with attacks and different types of uh, of activity by the enemy. But in terms of this one, I because of the circumstances, and now you hear about the grandmother, you know, saying goodbye to the baby, going to the airport, finding out upon landing in the United States what had happened, and so many other things, and the American connection. Uh, the the father supposedly was a student here in New Jersey in yeshiva. I mean, with all these different things, yet yet another episode that has really pierced the collective Jewish heart. I said yesterday, you know, every terrorist attack as we know and god almighty how many have we observed over and heard about over all these years you know every one of them uh, attacks the collective jewish heart but there's, there's just a uniqueness to each one and this one of course you know caused a tremendous amount of pain worldwide well when you read how it happened and uh, the, the nature of the attack <clears throat> and the ties that ultimately 
uh, come out that this is not just an independent act or the act of a crazy man. You know, we see it now in the attacks, whether it's in Canada, the attacks here in New York, the, the, these hatchet-wielding guy, right. and which they're now saying may be an act of terror uh, or being redefined as an act of terror. When when you look at the situations, you know, the guy in Canada, they keep saying he was a lone operative, that they were looking for other shooters. Now they say he was alone. But they're investigating now Canadian officials, 63 uh, cases, this is not a, not individuals, 63 cases, or 90 individuals who are suspect of being involved in planning or attacks. They, they know that um, many have gone to Syria and to other places, perhaps 150, 80 have returned to Canada. So they try to keep uh, track of it, and the, the Royal Mounted Police and the CSIS and the others uh, there uh, in law enforcement uh, are... Uh, looking at it. But this guy who carried out the attack Canada, now they find a Libyan passport, that he was a Libyan Canadian citizen, and the, the caliph of, of uh, uh, IS, who issued a, a, a fatwa telling people that they, the, his followers, that they should um, go after and kill in any fashion right. the non-believers in the countries that are involved in the coalition or in, in attacks. So and, and, and by the way, PA representatives also were praising the East, the East Jerusalem man who was responsible for the terror attack. I was just going to come to it right. that you have to go back and look at the incitement of Abbas, not mm-hmm. just PA guys. Correct. Abbas, the moderates, the incitement of the moderates you can start with, right. Who banned, once said that they have to ban Jews from the Temple Mountain, said Jews defiled, and, and knowing that this is something that incites people and that, you know, when they say Al-Aqsa is under siege and other things, they know that the, the, the reaction, what the reaction will be, and the uh, the tolerance of any kind of Lebanon, I think the police have taken uh, measures. You know, they banned people uh, under 50. They took other steps to try and, and not shut off the, the, the Temple Mount, but uh, but to, to contain any potential um, uh, violence. Right. But Jews were barred for times from it. Right. And I think that that... All those things, you have to be careful about the message that it sends. The uh, and and that's what I wanted to mention when I alluded to the comparison or the discussion about you know the Jerusalem attack this week, same day as the Canadian attack. You know, we we, we refer to or certainly the world looks at you know Yerushalayim, Israel, unfortunately, is a hotbed of terrorism. Right, anything could happen at any moment. How many people were probably saying to themselves, "I was standing at that light rail, you know, a day ago, a week ago, or an hour ago when this attack happened." Uh, and then you go to Canada, which we always, of course, you know, joke about, you know, half jokingly. Uh, you know, isolated country, no problem on their borders. <laughs> Basically, you know, the, the, do they even need an army? Do they even need a military? And sure enough, there's an attack in their capital. And that's why, you know, the great, uh, the great debate of the 20th century on isolationism or not is essentially over. Basically, every world leader has, especially in the West, has got to come to the conclusion that terrorism is now at everybody's front door. It's at everybody's front door, but it, it's not on their borders. It's in their borders. Right. And the the review of how, how these situations developed to the point they were, Canada had an open-door policy, and Hezbollah took advantage of it, and its second biggest base outside Lebanon was in the Toronto area. Wow. And this goes back many years, and we had discussions ten years ago about this, eight years ago about it with Canadian officials. Now they're cracking down. The problem is that the barn door is open and all these guys escaped inside and, and 
they have a, a big job, but it's not just them. Look what the British are facing. Yeah. Half of their resources are, are devoted to dealing with these guys. Who I know, but when you think of Canada, you know what I mean by the impression yeah, everybody their, their has. Their biggest threat is the dairy farmers in upstate New York. Exactly, right? or the weather, you know, <laughs> basically. Um, was there an overreaction by the NYPD, you know, guarding the Canadian uh, uh, um, uh, landmarks in, in, in the New York area and all that. I mean, this was, this was, this likely was, you know, a, a, a the, no, nobody's out to get the Canadian, like I, I was reading theories about, uh, uh, Canadians, uh, you know, versus ISIS and support for the United States effort in this worldwide war. I mean, could it be that that was the message that, you know, that you have to stop supporting the effort against the enemy? Well, I'm not saying that the attack there was related to, to a broader event. We'll see what the, what the, uh, investigation. investigation and what the findings are, et cetera. But it is part of a worldwide rise in terrorism, and you see the orders being given, and that IS can recruit people and train them there and send them back, specifically trained in a special camps to carry out attacks abroad. In Canada, they figure perhaps it's more vulnerable, especially when you see that the parliament is not con- the entrance is not controlled like it is to the Congress or to the Capitol, and take it take advantage. I don't think the police here overreacted because you have copycats, and if in fact some order was given to go after can- Canadian installations, you mm-hmm. have to prevent it and therefore take prophylactic measures. Not necessary because they had specific information, which they said they didn't, but because you have to assume or you take the, the, uh, the prophylactic measures not to allow something to happen that you could have prevented. All right. Uh, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. A rarity for us, a weekly update here on a Friday. It's Friday, 740 in the morning every single week. Make sure to be tuned in on a weekly basis. Malcolm Holmline, of course, uh, with us. Um, by the way, Prime Minister Harper, he, he's great, right? I mean, his reaction was amazing, the way he uh, um, the way he uh, basically brought the country together up there after this attack. He did. He took uh, very strong measures and spoke with uh, real determination about the issue. And as you know, he has been one of the strongest, if not the strongest, and most um, uh, forthright supporter of Israel yeah. in the international community and uh, has demonstrated that same kind of leadership in regard to Israel. Yeah, that itself could explain why Canada is a target, but uh, we appreciate Certainly, I know that... Oh, we uh, give him too much credit if we do that. <laughs> for being a target? <laughs> the enemy the credit or the... Yeah, we're giving the enemy too much credit. Oh, that's true. They, pro-Israel. Right, that's, they read a paper. that's a good point. They probably don't realize it the way we do <laughs> in terms of how dedicated they are. Um by the way, another uh, death in Nepal. I mean, uh, d- d- the the situation simply is that I mean, this time a, b- a bus accident. The situation simply is that Israelis use Nepal, three thousand miles away, as a very active resort for them, right? Very active vacation spot, right? Young Israelis, especially, but uh, often those who finish the army go on tours, but they go to very dangerous places. You see, you read about incidents in in other parts of uh, of the world because they go on. Uh, let's say cutting edge trips where mm. they take adventurous. Mm. Uh, today, unfortunately, there are two Israelis uh, seem to were killed in oh, the accident, and three were injured. And of course, the the um, those who were caught in the avalanche uh, right. last week. I mean, these are real tragedies. You look at the faces and the histories of some of them; they're really quite remarkable. And the Israelis going in to uh, you know to 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 help out to. 
you know, take care of the situation after this happened. That's unique, or any country would would go and like the United States would do the same thing if American citizens were, God forbid, you know, uh, victims of some type of accident like that. Well, I think the United States uh, would, and it would certainly get involved, but I don't know that uh, others uh, send planes and fly the victims and try to get them out of there as quickly as possible, even right. those who were wounded, because they get far better treatment in Israel than they can get there. It's amazing. You know, it's we, we think we think Israel's this little sliver of land in the Middle East. The, 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 the reach is just incredible. They'll go anywhere to help anybody. Maybe one day the world will recognize that. Is, is there any? I read one article about this, but it was unclear. Is there a real timetable in terms of Israeli creation of this Ebola vaccine, or is it very far off? No, it's, the research is ongoing, and uh, there are places all over the world where they're doing research on right. Ebola. But Israel has been focused on it, <coughs> and uh, one leader I remember made a comment about uh, uh, Israel's response to, to Africa when, in fact, you know that Israel sent in uh, doctors to Cameroon early on in September already. They sent three field hospitals with soldiers and others to man it, doctors to man it. They have uh, provided equipment to the AU uh, African uh, Union some, uh, African Union um, troops, uh, which, by the way, does not recognize Israel and doesn't invite them to their meetings. Uh, but they prevent, they provided all its preventative equipment and uh, the uh, uniforms uh, to, to enable them to carry out the work. So Israel has been in the forefront of the relief in this case as they are. As again, you think of this little country and all the resources that they have to devote yeah. to, to these different uh, incidents and, and cases. Remember in Haiti, remember oh, sure. tsunami and so many other things. You know, this is expensive, and it's, uh, but it's part of the way Israel views its role and responsibilities in the world. And the comment that you were referring to, obviously, was a negative one about their role in Africa. Oh, yes. Unbelievable. I didn't see that, but just, well, I guess not unbelievable. Um, before we get to Iran and, and uh, other updates um, uh, regarding that, I just wanted to make one other comment about the whole reaction to the terror attack in Jerusalem. Uh, it, it seemed that... As you described and the headline that we discussed, it seems that a lot of listeners were very focused, and I was so glad to see that people were jumping into action about how to respond and what to do when they see a headline that's inaccurate or, you know, a, a bad portrayal or, um, uh, or if they see something on TV, obviously the internet, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, because, you know, we're not calling for boycotts here, and you and I have discussed this topic a million times, go directly to those websites, go directly to your telephone to call television stations, go directly to the newspapers or, or email them directly and, and let them know what the objection is. And uh, I mean, anything to add to that or that's essentially the strategy? No, that's exactly what, but they have to hear right away. Right. And people should, should demand when there's uh, no coverage of an incident like the attack in, in Jerusalem or miscoverage or misreporting, you got to respond immediately. You don't have to wait for us to, to give instructions right. thing that people should do automatically. And when you hear talk show hosts or you, you hear broadcasters or you hear, you know, you see comments, uh, whether it's in an editorial or in a story that's wrong, respond immediately. It does have an impact. Because you and I are never going, I shouldn't say never, you and I are likely not going to tell people, call this network with this phone number and tell them X, Y, or Z. By but, the time you come in on Friday and the story was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, then already, you know, everybody's on to the next thing. and, and Especially uh, these need days. To react but intelligently and not to just jump on every story. This doesn't mean that, I mean, there's so many stories that uh, get out today because of the internet and all this, the websites that this information and misinformation sometimes deliberately placed there to make people go out on a limb and then, then uh, you know, the, you cut the limb off behind them so you destroy their credibility. 
So it's, it's got to be done intelligently. But, for instance, an incident like the attack in Jerusalem is very clear. Everybody knows what happened, and you've got to make sure that it's covered right. No question about it. And, by the way, on the subject of passion, it was great to see this week that so many people were reacting this way and wanted to get involved. Uh, I, I know that this is not you know, a, a topic for you and I to discuss right now in depth, but we know that the death of Klinghoffer you know, debut took place this week. You have to acknowledge, at least, that it was great to see that people reacted, that the, the street was filled, and that you know pe- people were passionate enough to get out there uh, and uh, you know let let their feet do the talking and, and protest what was going on inside. Absolutely, I think it was done responsibly, right. effectively, by and large. I don't know that what the long term impact uh, was, right. but uh, uh, I think that the comments by Giuliani, Mukasey, et cetera, et cetera, were, were all uh, very strong and appropriately uh, expressed. And there were no really untoward incidents inside, you know, nothing that they can accuse uh, people of injuring or violence or threatening the uh, security of the situation. That was not the case. But uh, the very fact that this thing went on and that those who saw it were really reviled by it or just said this thing is so terrible just as a work of art, the fact that it was selected uh, raises more questions. And the, the editorials just in the last 24 hours, and I know, you know, it's already days old, but we're seeing it still build up where, where intelligent right. commentators and others are assessing what, what the impact is. And when it comes at a time of, of rising terrorism, it's even more significant because it does glorify, in a sense, terrorism. And it, it extols the murders of a, a man in a wheelchair because he was Jewish and throwing him overboard and all of the rest in the music the way it is uh, arranged to, to, to highlight the, the, the comments of the terrorists. Yep. And regardless of what whether you think it's anti-Semitic, it's not anti-Semitic, what, et cetera, et cetera, the fact is that this is inappropriate and wouldn't have been done about any other kind of one of, of the, these terrorist murders. And I'm glad you brought up the uh, you know glorifying terrorism, how it could be attractive to so many. Did you read that article today about how many women in Canada are joining ISIS? Well, if you remember, before we broke... Uh, uh, before Rosh Hashanah, I t- reported about 60 British women who who have been recruited from ages 18 to 24, uh, some as young as 16. Uh, young Canadian women have been going. Others from from France, etc. Women are becoming amongst the major recruits in, in these movements. Uh, there's still not a you know there's still a relatively small part of it, but right. the numbers are increasing steadily. Uh, it's part of the recruitment, and they get inspired by the same things. And what happens to them there, if you read the accounts of some of those who have tried to escape and tried to will come out and report on how they are abused and uh, misused, how they're made available as wives, to, let alone the ones they capture, but even uh, some of those who have volunteered have been subjected to this kind of abuse. And it's also a further danger in terms of people who come back with passports, and women, I guess, are less suspect than some men in some instances, uh, that uh, it, it increases the, the danger and the the, um, the outreach of ISIS and similar groups. Unbelievable. All right, before Iran, one last thing. I mean, we're, we're actually reading now about possible new elections in Israel. I mean, how close is this to a reality? I don't think we're, we're there yet. Uh, another uh, member of the Knesset, Kahlon, one of the right. these leaderships are, uh, types, are uh, resigned today to oh, take didn't. the Israel Antiquities Authority. Uh, it it says something. Uh, we'll have to see what what it means in the long run. But uh, you know there are rumors about it. But I don't see 
in whose interest it would be to have elections now. I don't see anybody gaining very much. All right. Uh, all right. Iran, isn't there a, a very important deadline coming up? There is a very important deadline, November 24th. We're racing towards it. And month from today. Very, pardon me? Month from today. A month from today and very disturbing reports about, you know, uh, what kind of arrangements, what kind of concessions, what kind of deals are being made that the Iranians are holding to their, to their line. The IEA head, International Atomic Energy head, Amano, said that they are not cooperating and that there are real questions if it's for peaceful purposes. We see them continuing to provide weapons to Lebanon, to ISIS, against ISIS, to get to, to other groups. And, and I say this because it's important to know that the danger is not just Iran's involvement with, uh, with the nuclear program, but when you put in the larger context that they are fomenting terrorism around the, the region, their support of Assad, the, the, what they're doing with Hezbollah, even their support of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and, uh, and other groups. And then you had the story last week that broke, which administration denies that they're going to bypass Congress. They're saying we don't need to go to Congress because we're not lifting the sanctions. We're only suspending them. But the net effect is will be the same on the economy uh, of Iran if they suspend as they did in the interim agreement. Um, they said you don't need a two-thirds vote of the Senate because it's not a treaty. Uh, but they're saying they don't want to bypass Congress. I think Congress will react very negatively to any attempt of that kind. Uh, but and, and the point is that there shouldn't be any relief until there's full compliance. And the, they're saying, well, we're not giving relief, we're just suspending. We see that the our, uh, car sales in Iran have went up four times this year. We see other benefits. With the price of oil dropping, Iran is more susceptible now than ever. And the economic pressure should be ratcheted up now, not decreased. We see China... Uh, now talking about military deals uh, uh, with Iran, uh, other violations of the sanctions regime ongoing with the sales of oil, etc. I think that the, the any idea that that you, 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 there would be a major decision and you don't have bipartisan support will undermine both its implementation. I think Congress will not look favorably on an extension. The administration, Secretary Kerry, said that they don't want to have an extension either. But you see the Russians and others now talking more and more about it and that they would continue the current uh, deal, this interim deal, which still gives them uh, relief. And the fear is that you have all these companies running in there waiting for any kind of a break so that they will, will be in the, in the front line. So the debate now has been about the number of centrifuges. There shouldn't be any. But where there are all sorts of numbers in the thousands that are being uh, thrown out, the question of transparency, the, tra- the question of how long the deal lasts, the question of what uh, re- relief they'll get is the, is the uh, Iranian side. But in the interim, and you know that on the show I talked for weeks about the danger of Yemen falling. Well, while we weren't on the air, Yemen fell. A country fell to Iran. And people may not think it's important but Iran is critical, and the Houthis, who are the ones who marched, and we knew about it, we saw when it was months, when it was weeks, when it was days, the West did nothing, and they let the capital sound up fall to them. These are wholly owned subsidiaries, uh, a, a wholly owned subsidiary of Iran, and they now captured it. They, did, they captured a city, Hudaydah, which is on the Red Sea, north of the Bamba Mandab. And I just, for one second, this is the critical entry point that to the Red Sea, to the, to, to the shipping from the Suez Canal. Uh, 40% of the world's oil comes through these straits every day. 
this is goes into the Gulf of Aden. It, it is such a geopolitically critical place. And now the Iranians will have control of that and the Straits of Hormuz, which are the two entry points, two transit points, rather, uh, for all of this shipping. And, and, and critically, they could close them off in a, if... Uh, if they, in a time of conflict or in some situation, we would, of course, fight to open it. But the very fact that this can happen without, uh, with almost no response in the capital today of Sana, there are at least 14 checkpoints of the Houthis, and on it are painted signs that say, death to America, death to Israel, damn the Jews, and victory for Islam. Where's the response? Where's the world? A country fell to Iran. And, and they're continuing to move now from the capital south, they're fighting against some of these Muslim Brotherhood tribal groups, but in all these conflicts, they've beaten Al Qaeda and they've beaten uh, beaten them. So it's you know it's really uh, unbelievable how the world allows things like this to go on. And U.S. intervention is limited. And we reward them. Is limited or at not or at zero because there's no financial interest. I mean, I hate to be cynical, but, but is there that? Is a, I'm just pointing to you that exactly that that there's a huge financial interest in this and what happens in Yemen. Uh, and and it's a critically geopolitical uh, position. This is the the proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia that's been going on for a long time, where the Houthis, armed by Iran, have been fighting along the border against the, the Saudi. Saudi has been bombing them. Many people killed over over the years. If the straits were closed, would the price of oil jump like crazy? <laughs> like uh, unbelievable. So wouldn't that be beneficial to both Iran and Saudi Arabia? It's not beneficial. Saudi Arabia is uh, not raising the price of oil. Iran is demanding it because Iran needs 105 or between 95 and 105 dollar barrel oil. Oils, you know, dropped, and when it went below 90, went below 85. This was a shock to the Iranian system and to Russia, by the way, which is also engaged in all sorts of nefarious activities uh, in the region and, and supporting Assad, as you know, and. Uh, weapon sales all over the place. After 10 years of being out, they, they picked up clients like Egypt and um, the GCC because the West is, is not doing the right things and not uh, behaving the right way towards some of these countries. But they're there, and they're staying out of the conflict. Meaning what? They're over. They're are, are very clear. But so the price of oil dropping has a dramatic effect. And the fact that the Gulf states and, and Saudi Arabia, et cetera, are not holding back production in order to raise it again to because of the glut of the market uh, is because they understand that this is hitting Iran and, it, and and hitting their ability then to fund these terrorist activities. Right, I understand, but it, it's, I, I'm, not, I'm not claiming that Saudi Arabia and Iran would be in cahoots with each other. What I'm saying is if Iran would go ahead and close the straits, they would certainly benefit financially, correct? But the cost of production is different in every country. For instance, Venezuela, it's very heavy oil. It costs a lot more to to, to extract it and to refine it. So they're hit more proportionately than Saudi Arabia, where the oil is much cheaper to produce. It bubbles out of the out of the ground, and it's a lighter crude. It is all very technical, but but yeah. there is differences for there are differences for each country. But overall, the principle you're right. Uh, and by the way, uh, people may not have noticed it, but Venezuela is great democracy. Got a seat on the UN Security Council. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't see that. <laughs> And, and won by 180 to zero vote or something, 110 abstentions. <laughs> uh, and the the uh, by the way, Turkey was de- defeated uh, by Spain in its uh, effort, which was I think a repudiation. I think you will see much more reaction uh, to it. But the very fact that Venezuela, which was defeated two years ago, got in this time, 
very disturbing, and we, we can look forward to great things with uh, having certain countries now in the Security Council. You got to go back for a moment because um, this is one of the stories that intrigued us while we were uh, uh, while we were celebrating Yumtovs on uh, on Fridays. Um, there was a blast at the Iran Parchin nuclear plant. The Iranians think that Israel's responsible, and in fact ordered a retaliatory, retaliatory attack against Israeli soldiers because of it. Uh, has Israel or has anybody acknowledged who's responsible for that attack October 10th? No, so far no one has, and there was an explosion. It's very clear. It leveled a whole section of Parchin, which is where a secret base where there's no inspection, but where they we believe they're doing the weaponization and they're 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 testing the triggers for a nuclear weapon. Other uh, other parts of the uh, technical technological parts of the uh, weapon system. Because there are three parts, you know, that there's the missile, you need a delivery system, you need weaponization, which is the ability to affix a nuclear weapon and developing a nuclear weapon and having the enrichment, the enriched uranium for it. So this was that part, that middle part, that, that uh, which is being done at Parchin. And uh, so it was very significant, but yeah, you're right, you don't read much about it. And, and how likely is it that uh, an outsider could have come in and caused that explosion? Uh, that it would not have been an accident within the facility itself or sabotaged by one of their own. I mean, is, is it possible the way, the, with the lay of the land the way it is, is it possible that an outside country could have come in and caused that explosion? Is it possible that a drone could have dropped something? Is it possible that uh, some agent, it could it be? Well, I'm asking more about likelihood. The Iranian group, could it? Absolutely. And the Iranians never acknowledge it because they, you know, uh, directly. Unless there's, uh, you know, it's exposed to the world. But here, 12 kilometers away, the windows were broken. They couldn't hide it. Well, they asked Hezbollah to retaliate on Israel, so they must have acknowledged something. Well, they they do that automatically, right. But uh, And and this is another issue, which we, I guess, today we can't do. But the the activities on Israel's northern front and the earth-moving machines and stuff that, that Israel today, by the way, is sending troops down to start checking out what, what happened, because there's a belief that they're building tunnels underneath, like we had the reports from Gaza that people living near the border areas here digging here these uh, machines and these earth moving machines have disappeared into the side mountain they can't see them now so this is uh, another concern about what's happening on Israel's northern border with Iran's proxy Hezbollah unbelievable what do you think of the Shabbos project Malcolm I think very highly of it uh, Rabbi Goldstein had called me about it in the beginning I thought that was a wonderful idea he did it in uh, South Africa. Now here, I see the signs around. I'm speaking at an event tomorrow. Where? Uh, uh, at the Agudo and Avenue L tomorrow before Mincha. There's a panel to t- of people talking about, uh, uh, you know, what it means to be from in the world uh, as a whole. The um, so I think it, it's a good idea, and, it, and it's very important for us to break the barriers and to. What we saw this summer, the unity, the actors, it's really important that we sustain it. And what better than Shabbos to bring people together and to to remind us with all the problems that we've discussed and hardly even broke the surface. We didn't <laughs> talk about the British vote. We didn't talk about the Irish yesterday voting to recognize the Palestinian state. We didn't talk so many things. The Arab Bank, what happened with uh, this very important decisions or Nazis getting Social Security. We have so many things, a serious catalog of issues that are current that it's time sometimes to step back and to to look at the good and to to come together 
and to find what we have in common, not what divides us. Amen to that. Well, you always said there is some good news out there. I'm glad we were able to wrap up with it. Uh, enjoy your uh, Shabbos Rosh Chodesh, and uh, we will speak Bezrat Hashem next week. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. The weekly update, Friday, 7.40 Eastern Time here at JM in the AM.